Are you feeling burnt out and disconnected? Do you feel like you're doing all the things to get back in control of your time and energy, but it's not working? Deep down, you know there's more to life than this, but you're not sure how to access it and you're ready for a strategic shift. Consider joining us for our next round of mastery and or our mastery plus business program where you get personalized one-on-one support, accountability, and mindset training. Visit Heather Chauvin, C-H-A-U-V-I-N dot com forward slash mastery, M-A-S-T-E-R-Y. Visit today for details. Are you a six or seven figure business owner? Looking to up your profit game? I define profit as time, energy, and money. The time flexibility to work your schedule around your work, your personal and your professional life, flowing in a sustainable way. The energy freedom, the mental, physical, and emotional freedom to live in alignment with how you want to feel. And of course, the financial freedom. Not only just to grow a profitable business and also grow your wealth, but also have the ability to hire quality team members that you feel supported by and treat them well, giving back to your community and charities that matter most to you, while also making sure that your family is well taken care of, not to mention reinvesting in yourself so that you can perform at an optimal level. Well, guess what? We are now accepting applications for our next cohort of the Emotionally Uncomfortable Attracting Profit Sales Accelerator. So head on over to Heather Chauvin, that's spelled C-H-A-U-V-I-N dot com forward slash business and get on the interest list. Inside, you'll learn how to attract qualified leads every week and sales every day while getting the one-on-one support knowing how to lead a high-performing team, and doing all of this, only adding an extra 60 minutes a day to your already full plate. And to counter that, I also want to teach you how to buy back your time and energy so that you can have more of that. You will be implementing the leadership mindset of doing less better. And this is how I will teach you to reverse engineer how you want to feel. Not just in your business, but in your mind, your body, your soul, and your relationships as well with your kids and your partner and those that matter most to you. I personally review each application to make sure that your vision and attitude are aligned with the courageous action takers that join my community. Once accepted, you will also be gifted a one-on-one profit session with me. If you are interested, head on over to heatherchauvin.com forward slash business and join our interest list so we can send you the application as we are actively reading and accepting ladies in the next cohort. That's heatherchauvin, C-H-A-U-V-I-N.com forward slash business. Hello, Laura, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, so nice to be here. Um, 
I I said to you before I hit record that I receive a lot of pitches for the podcast and I love having deep, meaningful, emotionally uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> and when your book came across the desk, I was like, I want to talk to Laura because I find the story fascinating, the why behind it. Um, and I think it really contributes to like what gives life meaning and and how to feel alive while we are still on this earth. So I'm going to give you the microphone and I know you're, you're doing lots of podcast interviews because your book just came out. So let's talk about the book and why, what made you write it? Okay. Thanks. Um, so my book is called my father's list. Um, how living my dad's dream set me free. Um, I'm really honored to be here today because, uh, I've listened to your shows and, you just, you have so many incredible people on who talk about how they've totally turned their lives around. And that's, that's what this list did for me. Um, my dad died when I was 25 years old. Um, it was because of a teenager who was making a phone call. Um, and I had always been really close with him, but at the same time, he was a divorced dad. So I only saw him twice a week. And so it's this weird sort of paradox, right? Because it's like, on the one hand, this is a person I'm super close to. And on the other hand, it's like, I never had enough time with him in a way. And now again, the time is being cut short as, you know, or at least that's how people described it to me. Um, and I was, I think on top of grieving and being sad, I was resentful. Um, and, and not just resentful that I didn't get to have these adult rites of passage with him. I knew he wasn't going to be at my wedding, you know, and my first job out of college, anything I did in my life, like he, I, I just at that time believed he was going to miss. Um, but I also felt he didn't get to finish his life. You know, like, was he fulfilled? Did he do the things that he wanted to do? Because the thing about my dad is he was this very creative person and he lived in a small town. And usually when that happens, it's kind of challenging <laughs> for you to figure out how am I going to pursue my passions and, you know, find my purpose as, as people call it. And he was a, he was a brilliant writer. He wrote a book and then he couldn't get it published in 1978, the year I was born. So they self-published it. And my mom was a teacher. So she went and she bound it in her, you know, her teacher's lounge at school and they gave it to everyone as presents for Christmas. And I grew up hearing about this book constantly. <laughs> you know, it's, he got the why generation, a why not world because he was living in the seventies and getting married in the seventies. And he was thinking, what happened to the sixties? Basically, he's like, everybody was so revolutionary and we were trying to change things and we were questioning government. And now everyone's just sort of like, whatever, that's basically what the book is about. Um, so in a way, even though I was sort of like embarrassed by this book and by him being this creative person, it was like sort of the best things he did for me because I'm that person too. And when he died, the first thing I did when my brother called me and I had just moved to New York City for an internship at a magazine, which everyone thought I shouldn't do because <laughs> it just seemed so scary. My dad didn't. My dad was super excited. The first thing I did was I walked back up in a daze to the apartment. I was co-op. I was uh, renting. It was a co-op. And I found his book on the bookshelf and I flipped back to the chapter I had just read about death because in the end of it, he talked about, he called it the chapter of the future. And he's like, here's what will happen when I die. So it was so helpful because it's like, here I have this guide to life and I still have his words. And that was exactly what he said in that chapter was he said, really the great people in history never die because their work lives on forever. Hmm. And 
I didn't understand in that moment at age 25, when I just found out my dad had been killed, I didn't understand how prophetic that was going to end up being for me in my life. Because now here I am and I have this book and his legacy lives on forever in this book. And the way the book came to be is that when he died, I I wanted to write a book about it. And I had also like that year of my life was just sort of filled with turmoil. Um, I had been diagnosed with depression when I was 16 and I'd been to different um, therapists for years. And in the year I was 24, no, sorry, I, I, the year I was 23, I saw this one doctor who had me on like as many as nine different medications at once. Wow. And by my college graduation, I saw a different doctor who's like, what the heck is going on? You know, like you need to get off all of these, but I couldn't do it on my own. So she had me stay in a hospital for a week and I got off. I'm, now I'm only on one. That was like all I needed. But <laughs> Uh, and this was 20 years ago, but still like it was really stigmatizing for me and being in Delaware, this small place, I, I was, you know, I had a boyfriend dump me because of it. Um, I just felt like everyone's going to know I have to get out of here. And then I met my boyfriend who would become my husband online. And then I had my first internship and then he met my dad. And then my dad literally died five days later. Wow. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> That I felt like this is like I'm living in a movie, like from for a girl from Delaware, there was like, you know, a lot of exciting and also terrible things and also great things happening. So for many, many years, I knew I had this book in me about this time, but I just didn't have enough confidence. Like I just I felt like who, you know, you know, that whole like, who do you think you are syndrome? It was like that. Like, oh, really? You're a writer? Like you're a book author. <laughs> so instead, I just focused on my work and I I kept climbing the ranks in women's magazines because that was my dream and by the time I got married I was a copy editor at Good Housekeeping um, which I was really proud of and it was exciting and it was glamorous going into that building every day but at the same time you know copy editing isn't really like <laughs> it's not like the peak of creativity you know mm -hmm. I was you're like of, you're on the outside of it yeah. you're like oh well this is what I'm supposed to be doing but it's not self-expression yeah, the way I've described it to people is like, it's almost like you're the stage manager mm -hmm. of the play and you're you're helping the actresses and actors. Um, but at the same time, I think I had a lot of um, lessons being a copy editor. Like I was learning from other people's writing for, for you know, 20 years. And I'm still a copy editor now. I still do it freelance. But um, when the list arrived, it was six months after my wedding. Um, my husband proposed 10 years after we met. And we got married and I was terrified to get married because, again, like I said, my dad wasn't going to walk me down the aisle. Um, it wasn't so much that I was afraid of how it would feel as it was that I was afraid people would, would take pity on me. Mm. Like, I'm 38 years old and he's not here. And, you know, what is her life going to be? Like, I just felt like a victim in a way. And I hated that feeling. Um so I became an advocate uh, just by total coincidence. Of course, there's no coincidences. but but. Uh, one day at work, a magazine, uh, the, uh, you know, magazine article came across my desk that I had to copy edit and it was all about distracted driving. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what that was. I had never pieced it together that, that the girl was on the phone. So when I read it, I thought, well, I must have, I must be working on this for a reason. And I called the man in the story and I talked to him and I, I said, well, maybe I can help you with your cause. So I went and I talked with him in a high school which was really liberating in a way because it was the first time I ever talked about my dad's death in public. And I, I almost never talked about it with anybody. 
And then um, I started running. Like just at the same time, my brother was dating a girl who was a runner and she was like, come to my running birthday party. So I running birthday party. Yeah, it was. Do you know what a color run is? It was a color run. Yes. Okay. That makes more sense. That was the thing. I was like, I'm an artist. Own running birthday party. (laughs) I'm an artist. But yeah, again, I was like, what? Why would you want to work on your birthday? (laughs) I love it. That's something. But, you know, I was, I wanted to make friends. (laughs) And that was the other thing that happened to me after my dad died. I sort of shut down. Like I had been very social in high school and college. And then I moved to New York and my dad died. And all I had then was my boyfriend. And I just sort of talked to him all the time. And I just, I felt different. I felt so different from every, every every time I did tell someone the story, they would act almost like afraid of me. Mm -hmm. So I sort of just stopped branching out. I would have friends at work, of course, but I wasn't socializing anymore. So Mm -hmm. I I think I was now getting into a phase of my life where I was like, well, okay, if people are running now, I'll I'll go run, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I loved it. I had no idea I was going to love it so much. And I mean, obviously, right? Like I have depression, like running is really good for you. (laughs) And I started doing a 5Ks and then I started doing half marathons. And then pretty soon I was running the New York Marathon. And then I used it to raise money for my friend's distracted driving group. And it felt so good. And this happened like right before the wedding. It felt so good because I felt like I was taking some agency back with what happened. And I was, I, I didn't have to go to a support group. I didn't have to be treated like a victim. I could be a champion. You know, I could be a champion of a cause. So I really think that those were like the baby steps for me before finding my dad's list. And then that happened. So six months after our wedding, my brother was about to get married too. And we were going up to visit him and his brand new house. And I just, you know, I was trying to show him support that he was having this adult rite of passage that my dad wasn't there for. And he said, oh, we found this when we were moving in. And it was like this 60 item list of things. It's at the top of the list of things I would like to do in my lifetime. And it was my dad's handwriting. And I don't, I mean, we we call it a bucket list now, but I don't think they had that term in 1978 because we found out later that's when he wrote it right after I was born. Wow. So was this in a house that you're... Like, where was it from? Was it your brother? My brother had had it. Yeah, he'd been carrying it in a box for 13 years. Okay. Interesting. And he just hadn't opened the box. And he married a woman who was really good at opening boxes. <laughs> that's the best way I could put it. She's just not a hoarder. <laughs> like, she's like, let's deal with this. You know, like, that's how my sister-in-law is. So when he saw it, he just said, oh, we need to show this to Laura. And they had actually decided because my brother and I were in each other's weddings. Like I was, we called my, we called my title, his best gal. <laughs> they decided they wanted to frame it and give it to me, but they just got so excited that they're like, we need to show it to her. Cause they're coming this weekend. And it was great. It was like getting to read my dad's handwriting again and remembering what he was all about and what a dreamer he was. And, and some of them were really funny too. It was just like, you know, this was a year where my brother and I were especially missing him. So it was really nice to get to hear his voice again and and sort of relive like what he was like. And my brother wasn't in this position because he was pretty satisfied with the choices he was making in his life. But I was in this like existential depression when it showed up because after the wedding, I was starting to feel like everybody expected me now to start checking off all of these adult boxes 
you know, and I think that's because I'm a woman, like the wedding wasn't enough. It was like, oh, well, when are you going to have kids? Oh, well, when are you going to buy a house? You know, when are you going to settle down and you can't keep living like this? <laughs> like that's essentially the, you know, the messaging from society I was getting. And I was really getting bummed out about it because I just felt like, well, this is so sexist, you know, like I'm quote unquote starting my life um, in my own way with my husband. And I should be encouraged to just be my authentic self while I do it. It's so messed up that as women make that choice, we're encouraged to become a possession. Um, and yeah, so I really don't think my brother was facing any of that. And I was. So to have my dad show up like in the middle of this awful thing I was going through, it just felt like an answer. It felt like, oh, right. He didn't, he didn't treat me like that. He mm. treated me like my gender didn't matter and like I could do whatever I wanted. And even though, like I said, I still had this resentment about did he finish what he wanted to do? And is the reason he didn't because he was too flighty or too, you know, not serious enough and not responsible enough? And, and oh, my God, am I also that way? Like, those are all things I was still carrying. So when I did say yes to the list immediately, it was like this heart choice. Like, that's what I call it. Like, I just knew. And my husband also felt it. And he said at the same time, this is your book. You have to finish this for him. So I knew, but at the same time, I think what people don't realize a lot of the time is it was really scary for me to do it because it oh, was how long forcing after, me to face that. Yeah. What? How long after when you read the list or saw the list, how long after did you start like me? What did you make that commitment and then start checking things off the list? Yeah, I did immediately. Um, I was already training for my next marathon. Um, so. <laughs> So when Hillary lost the election, this was like right around that time, I was really disappointed and shocked, like a lot of people were. And um, I I was part of this women's group that was really supportive um, on Facebook. And in the group, someone had said, okay, look, like we know you're angry, but you need to find a like a, you know, constructive outlet for your anger. And so I thought, well, I'm a runner and that's what I do now. So I signed up to run the LA marathon and I was going to raise money for girls on the run, mm -hmm. which is this incredible group that, um, teaches running, but also, you know, um, teamwork and confidence and friendship and, um, self belief. Like it teaches all these things to girls like ages, I think nine to 13. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just wanted to do that for them because my feeling was those are the people who are going to suffer from what, from what just happened. And I want to try to build them up. So I was already doing that. And then I looked at the list and it said, run 10 miles straight. I thought I could do that. That'll be the first one because what the way I took it was it means no walking. So, and I had never done that because every time I've, I'd run a race, I definitely started walking after the first mile. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's always a little bit of walking involved. We're not usually, except for elite runners, we're not usually all running the whole time. So that's, yeah. that was the first task. I was really excited too. Like I just started training right away. And how long after did you complete that, like running 10? Uh, the, the, well, it had a, it had a deadline because the race was in March. And the thing that really amazed me was that, you know, so I told my friend who lived in LA that I was going to do this. And she said, um, you know, you can't run that whole marathon by yourself. Like you're just going to get exhausted because <laughs> she knew I'd never run 10 miles straight before. Mm -hmm. And then she said, uh, you know, Basically, we're talking about and I told her, well, I found out because I'm doing this thing for charity, I can do it relay style like I can get another woman out there to do it with me. So don't worry, I'll be OK. 
And then my, my, this is like my best friend from college. And she's just like, Oh, no, no, I'll do it. She's like, I'll do it with you. And then, so I ran the first 13 miles and she, oh no, sorry. She ran the first 13 miles. I ran the second 13 miles. And it was so like, it just was so heartwarming to me that she would take this on because she wasn't a runner. Mm-hmm. So it was like, as I'm, as I'm learning how to run 10 miles straight, I'm watching my best friend just learn how to run yeah. and experiencing everything that comes with that. And that ended up being really what the whole list would be like. It, I was never doing anything alone. Athletic Greens. I know you're like, Heather, are you going to fucking talk about AG1 again? Yes, I am. I am. And so is every other podcast host because we have become addicted to this green substance. AG1 has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes and trusted by leading health experts. And I have fallen in love. AG1 has become one of those just simple daily healthy habits. And I sneak that shit into my boys' smoothies as well. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is head on over to drinkag1.com forward slash E-U. That's drinkag1.com forward slash E-U for emotionally uncomfortable. Yeah. This is fascinating to me because I talk a lot about legacy and how do you want to feel and being the role model. And when we're in it, we're thinking to ourselves, I don't matter. Like my energy doesn't matter. How I feel matters. And here you are, you know, after your father passes, his legacy, like his dreams, his desires are literally the thing that keep you connected to him. And not only that, as you start, like I'm getting chills, as you start get like <laughs> going down this list, like his essence, his heart, like what he wanted to manifest in his life is now allowing you to bring other people into your life. Like it is, is literally a legacy relay metaphor of like, I love that how, <laughs> how it gets bigger. And I told her I'm very philosophical. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Like you're doing your thing. You're inspiring other people to do the same thing. Yeah. And, and not, not even always the same thing, right? Because it's sort of different for them. Like her reasons weren't even necessarily the same as mine, but she's still getting to share in it with me. Yeah. And one thing about that, that was also really cool was, like I said, I only saw my dad twice a week. Um, and I said, it always sort of felt like it wasn't enough time, but another element of that is he's like a secret. So when he died, who am I grieving with? But my brother, you know, um, he had, my dad had all brothers and sometimes men aren't great at communicating. (laughs) So we didn't have like the sense of, and he also didn't really own a house. He was renting and, so we sort of had this sense of where do we go? I mean, I know, I don't know if my brother felt that way. I know I felt that way. And we were both now 25 and 23. So we're starting our lives. So we're not, we're not really supposed to be going back home. We're supposed to be, you know, going out into the world. So we supported each other. And there was sort of, for me personally, like I said, I don't know how my brother felt, but for me personally, there was a lack of identity there. 
um, and, and a feeling like my dad shouldn't be talked about. Um, not, not just because of the reasons I felt when he was living, which were, is he like different from all the other adults in my life? And is that bad? But now because, oh, the way he died was tragic. And people just kind of don't want to deal with that. They don't want to hear about that and they don't want to feel that pain themselves. So they sort of push it away and pretend it didn't happen. And I, I, I think that was the hardest part for me because he was so influential on me and I had so much of him in me still, but it was going completely unexpressed because I couldn't connect to it. So yeah, I mean, to have, to have this, this mission and to have it be such a positive thing. And again, like I said, I was doing advocacy and even though advocacy is necessary, I personally felt like it wasn't reflecting my dad. Like mm -hmm. his spirit was, was, would never be a person who's like, please keep telling everyone about how I died, you know, and how they could not do it too. Like, that's just not who he was. Right. He was a person who had such a, he was into Napoleon Hill, like um, law of attraction kind of stuff. Like he had such a positive mindset that he would have wanted me to just celebrate life and celebrate how he lived. And I didn't understand that at the time, but that's really what was going on. So to be approaching it that way, you know, no one was put off by it. Like, oh, this is your thing. This is your advocacy. It became, oh, I understand grief. You know, I understand wanting to challenge myself to try something new. And also most of these people are, um, over the age of 35. <laughs> so it was mm -hmm. sort of like they'd gotten in, I think they'd gotten into routines in their lives in some yeah. ways and I was coming in and shaking it up and that was exciting. So, I mean, I don't know, you'd have to ask them. My friend who did the marathon would probably be laughing at me right now. <laughs> How long did it take you to complete the list? Six years. Wow. But I gave myself a deadline of four because the first item said he hoped to live until the year 2020. Mm. But then COVID happened. So that was now impossible. <laughs> of course, right? Like every, the funny thing about the list too is it wasn't like things were streamlined. <laughs> you know, like every single item had a hiccup of some kind. And so of course, even the deadline of finishing it would have this enormous hiccup that I would have to cope with and learn how to adjust to. And as I did each list item, um, I began to learn that maybe the list was always meant for me. Mm. Um, it was born the same year I was, and maybe each of these lessons that my dad would have learned if he had, I mean, he only did five of them. If he had done all of them, you know, maybe he was get, he would have gotten the benefit of, you know, what does it feel like to cross a finish line when you have urine running down your legs? That's what it was like for me. And I had to get over it. You know, I had to get over my perfectionism. That's what that list item was about. Um, you know, what is it like to swim across a river in an extremely rough current and be scraping your knees all across? And you didn't expect that to happen. You know, it's like each thing that was an obstacle for me was a lesson that was making me better and that was helping me to become the best version of myself. So and and I, I just felt so much reverence for it while it was happening because I knew these were for him and I was getting to do it. So it was helping me to also appreciate what it is to be alive. I love that. How did you feel when the list was done? <laughs> I felt really good. I mean, a lot of people ask me about that. Like, are you going to be depressed? Like, are you now going to be grieving for the list? Has this become like a surrogate for your dad? Um, I felt like 
at peace. I felt this peace I'd never felt before. I described it as feeling like I was falling all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. Like that was the level of tiredness because I had just put so much emotional energy into something for six years. And it really just felt right to me. Like, I think if you're doing something that's right, your tiredness sort of stops mattering after Mm -hmm. a while. Um, You're able to just keep going and do what you have to do. And I feel that way right now too, with promoting my book. Um, And I finished the book about a month before I finished the list. And then I wrote an epilogue. So the epilogue included the ending and it was like, everything was done at once. And I think that's how it was supposed to be because then I could move on to the next chapter and start. I mean, I had already started my own list, but integrating how am I going to be this person who is this list finisher? Like, what does that mean out in the world? And by then I had started making friends who were also on grief missions Hmm. and needed inspiration and needed guidance. And now I'm that person. And I almost want to cry talking about this because it's so beautiful that I can be someone Sorry. <laughs> never apologize. I can be someone. What'd you say? I said, never apologize for being. Um, I didn't know I would cry. You're a person I just met. <laughs> You're just very inspiring to me. Um, I didn't, I could never have conceived that I was going to end up being a role model for people who were feeling alone in grief mm. because that's, that was who I was for such a long time. I tell people crying is my love language when I get <laughs> or or just people crying in my presence because it feels to me it's like a rite of passage that you feel safe to be seen. So, thank you for being you. Um I told you this before that I usually and now I'm going to cry. I usually don't I get a lot of inquiries and I'm like there's something about your story and Yes, I have my own journey and feeling alive and doing all the things. And I don't even know what the meaning is behind it yet. But I will tell you, the conversation I had right before you today was with a client. And we were talking about her journey because she's been in my world for four or five years. And she's a therapist. And she came to me wanting to um, understand her son's behavior. And at the end of it, it was a lot of grief work that goes through this journey that, you know, humans think we need a physical loss in order to understand and jump into grief work, but we are grieving all the time. We just mm-hmm. don't know that it is grief. And this this conversation is coming up. But the other part that really gets me in my heart is I'm raising three boys. Yes, I'm this crazy visionary dreamer who's like, I'm going to live my best life. I'm a woman. Don't tell me who to be or what to do. I'm just going to do it anyways. And my children and my family can come along for the ride. And you're giving me so much more for like the future of the legacy. But the last part is, is I grew up as that little girl seeing my father every other weekend and feeling Uh that disconnect. And I have been thinking about it lately. He's still physically alive, but I've been thinking about it lately. What part of myself do I need to heal or let go of in order to heal this relationship with him? And there's something there. And I don't Mm -hmm. think anything is a coincidence that, you know, we can still grieve people when they're physically alive and also learn how to celebrate legacy at the same time. And that's what I appreciate about your story is the duality of 
you know, grief can feel so isolating and heavy and alone. And you're, you're living that like, let's live, let's go out, let's challenge ourselves through the grief journey. And I think that's, what's really unique about you, your story and, um, yeah, what you're, what you're doing in the world. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I think there, the other element of it, of my grief experience is the trauma, um, Mm -hmm. because it was very scary the way that he died. And I don't hear people talk about this a lot that, and someone told me this once and it really opened my eyes to what was happening. She said, when you have trauma and also grief, you have to deal with the trauma first. And then you can get to the grief. And I thought, oh my God, I've been stuck in the trauma for 10 years. That's crazy, (laughs) but that's what it was. And I think that was a big part of why I finally started getting to the grief because a person who's experienced trauma, I think shuts down in a a certain degree. Like It's like, I need to protect myself from change. I need to not let anything else happen. And it was like, for me, I was re-experiencing trauma that happened when my parents got divorced. Because that's a big change. And I think different parents handle it different ways. And I don't know how your parents did, but there's always something I think that happens for a kid who is going through that big change that will affect them later in life. So for me, it was like his death was now re-triggering that. Um, and I shut, like I said, I wasn't making friends, even though I was in this exciting city I had moved to. I wasn't doing things just for fun. I got super focused on work, which is the same thing I did when I was six years old and was doing really well in school, you know, like be the achiever. Mm -hmm. Um, And that wasn't being alive. It was protecting myself from death. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference. That statement. Yeah. Protecting myself from death. I think a lot of people though are doing that right now, right? Look at all the traumatic things we've been through the last couple of years. Yeah. I know I can feel it. I keep saying like, I'm in this bubble. Like I can feel it. Mm -hmm. And healing is also time and consistency It's patient. It's a patience game too. It's not like, okay, yep. New season, new life. It's like you go out into the world. You're like, I am a different person. Um, and we've all experienced life differently. Yeah. So Laura, where can people find your book? You should be able to get it anywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's in a lot of Barnes and Nobles now, which I'm super excited about indie bookstores. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, if you want to go to my website, you'll find all of the links to order it online. It's by com. And if you want to find me on Instagram, I'm my father's list. And on Twitter, I'm LAC 78. Awesome. Oh, wait, no, sorry. LAC 30. I get it mixed up <laughs> on Twitter. I'm LAC 30. I, obviously I don't use Twitter as much. <laughs> And you're probably have had way too many conversations where you're like, oh my gosh, reciting, reciting, reciting. Uh, Well, you know, that's how we connect now. So it's okay. (laughs) I appreciate it. Laura, thank you so much. I love and appreciate your story. And I can't wait to dive into your book line by line. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to see what I walk away with, but also knowing the impact that you're making in the world just by telling your story. Oh, that warms my heart. Thank you so much for having me. In March, we celebrate International Women's Day, and we also celebrate the anniversary, 
This year is the third year anniversary of my book coming out into the world, Dying to Be a Good Mother, how I dropped the guilt and took control of my life and my parenting. And as a thank you for being a part of this community, I wanted to gift you the e-reader version of my book. So if you head on over to Heather Chauvin, C-H-A-U-V-I-N.com forward slash free, F-R-E-E book, um, you will be asked to enter your name and your email, and then you're going to be gifted a code where you can enter this into the e-reader of your choice, and you can gift this to a friend, you can send them to the page, um, and that's my gift to you. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being a huge part of this community. I just love and appreciate you listening and interacting, um, and I would also love if you share this link with a friend, post it on the internet, do all the things and tag me. March is about celebrating us and empowering not only ourselves, but other women around us and the women before us and the women um, next to us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 